Tzorayim Tov. Not Tzorayim Tov. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov, everyone. Okay, we finished the uh, the lights of war, and I guess we there were a lot of casualties after the class. Yes, exactly. Because maybe just I don't know. And I was debating what to do afterwards, so I figured at least for this week and next week um, to do something that is related to Rav Cook in a certain way, as you will see. Uh, I don't know about this week, but next week um, we're going to learn about the life and uh, times of Rav Yisachar Shlomo Teichtal, who lived, was born in 1885 and passed away, uh, died a martyr's death in 1945, just weeks before the Holocaust was over. And that is who is going to be, and his yurt site, by the way, is next Shabbos. So when we finish the topic, we will discuss everything. Let, let us start, and uh, let's, uh, let's do a little repairs over here hide the sidebar that's good okay so there you have a picture of Europe and there is Hungary okay he was poor here's a little bit of history about 10-15 minutes just to know what kind of person he was and then we're going to talk about what was what we'll say his claim to fame and where his mark is in uh, Jewish history and why um, this safer that I'm showing you live is an important safer for every good Jew to read. So we're going to uh, explain all this. So his father Yitzchak was a great scholar, a teacher, and a chassid. His grandfather, after whom he was named Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo, was a Rosh Hashiva and a close follower of the Tzanzarov. So one thing you see right away Real Hasidic family. It's all important. His mother, Gittel, was a learned and pious woman. In this introduction to his responsa that he wrote, he writes about his mother. She walked truthfully and perfectly before God. She despised world pleasures, caring only about Torah and fear of God. Her only goal was to instill in her children a burning love for those very ideals. So obviously, comes from a very, very long line of religious families, scholars, uh, incredible yichus, as we would say. And as we continue, until his bar mitzvah, he was educated by his father. And Rav Teichtel writes, my father ushered me into the inner chambers of the Torah he provided me with a path through the Sea of the Talmud, a course through the mighty waters of the Torah. He brought me through its width and breadth from age three until 13. The private Chavrusa with your dad. Uh, the great rabbis always learn privately. And you have a father who's a scholar to teach you. As we know, the worst place to learn is in a school. So uh, he got private tutoring from his great father. After his bar mitzvah, he went to learn in a place I can't pronounce. Kathy, you want to try? Oh, is it too small? Okay, whatever. I can make this a little bigger if everyone's squinting. Let's see if we can zoom in. 
Whoa, that's a little too big. But okay, any one minute. Let's just okay. Fine. He went to that place on and a year later went to Tarno Galicia to learn at the yeshiva of the Tzanzer Hasidim. At fifteen, he moved to Gavna, Poland, and became a Talmud of Rav Shlomo Ungar, author of the Yad Shalom, and that's the sefer right over there. And one of the biggest Talmidei Chachamim of the time, Rabbi Sacher Shlomo became very close with him and even edited his sefer Yad Shalom, that sefer. So remember, at 15, right? So this is like right at the turn of the century. So we're just trying to show you that he was a great scholar. This is what I'm trying to impress upon you. So we know who we're talking about. It's not just any... Tom, Dick, and Jerry, um, you know, is are, is a great person. At age 19, Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo married Fredel, the daughter of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Gintz, the Rav of Hoida Busermin in Hungary, an author of the Hare Besamim, and a descendant of Rabbi Akiva Eger. It's big, big Hashiva families. Okay, look how old he is. Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo was then appointed as a dayan, that's a judge, to judge Jewish cases, and teacher in his father-in-law's community. His shurim grew in popularity, and he was admired for his learning and teaching. Tragically, his wife, Fredel, passed away at a young age, but he did have one daughter from her. Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo married again, this time to Nechama, daughter of Rav David Friedman, the Av Bezdin of Sahalim. Okay, moving on in the biography. In 1905, after returning to Hungary, Rabbi Sacher Shlomo went to learn under the Chusterov, author of the Ruga Sabosam. His name was Rav Moshe Greenwald, and that's a cover of that safer over there. A year later, at 21 years old, he received smicha from the Yad Yitzchak, the Rebbe of Telesheva. A year later, he received another smicha from Shmuel Rosenberg, the Bear Shmuel of Unsdorf. Additionally, he got smicha from the Avbez and Avmad, Mordechai Leib Winkler, the Levushe Mordechai. So, again, what do you see? And this is all in Hungary. Okay. So, you can know one thing's for sure. He didn't get one smicha. He didn't get two smichas. He got three smichas. So, he is, at a young age, he's a really huge scholar. Okay. Now, what about the Svarim that he wrote? He was a prolific writer. He corresponded on issues of halacha with great rabbis across Poland, Hungary, and Lithuania. He's mentioned in many of their responses. He also published many articles in Torah journals and periodicals. His first major work, that's let's say for on the left, was called the Mishnah Sachir, a collection of his responses. He began working on it at 24 years old and published the first volume 15 years later. It appeared with approbations from Gedolim with the time, giving him instant credibility. There were many, many volumes of this safer. You got to remember, we keep talking about Poland, Hungary, Lithuania. You know, there are no borders or boundaries. You, uh, you, you, know, you went to a country where you had a Rebbe who would help you the most. And you just need to know when we're talking about writing responsa, when you're talking about in the in the world of Torah knowledge, those are the most difficult uh, books to write. 
you know, you could find a person as well. These are my divrei Torah I had on the parsha. Okay, you could have a nice idea on the parsha, and if it's a nice idea, it is. If it isn't, it's not going to change the world. We're dealing with response. You're talking about halachic issues. It's like imagine a Supreme Court justice or appellate judges giving you their opinions. It has to be based on a lot of knowledge uh, to render a practical halacha. So you obviously have to have a tremendous amount of scholarship and to write to the other big rabbis around the world at the time to correspond with them. So it showed a tremendous uh, scholarship level he was at. The second volume of his response appeared in 1926, a third volume in 1940, just after the war began. The Nazis destroyed all the copies while they were still at the printing press. Only Rav Teichel's personal copy was saved with his other writings, like Aim Habonim Semecha and his personal journal. The Sucker Shlomo deposited his manuscripts with a non-Jewish acquaintance and instructed his family that if any of them survived to go retrieve them. Indeed, after the war, his daughter Hindel fulfilled the request and got the manuscripts back. They include commentary on the Talmud, Drush's insights into the Parsha and more. His son, who survived, subsequently published some of his writings, including three more volumes of the response of Mishnah Sacher and Mishnah Sacher on the Parsha and holidays. Additionally, Emuna Tzrufa Bikor HaShoah, which is a diary of events from the Holocaust, was published. The diary represents a unique dimension to the events from the Holocaust and what preceded them. It was discovered 50 years after it was written in the attic of Rav Teichtal's house. We'll talk more about that shortly. Okay, now, here again is another picture. This is Hungary. This is the country above uh, Hungary over here. So uh, let's just see who he was close with over here. I'm trying to keep it big enough that you can see it. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo was close with many Hasidic Rebbe's, including the Belzer Rebbe, the Shinevar Rebbe, the Munkach Rebbe, Rabbi Chaim Elias Shapiro. In 1921, he became a Rav and Abbezin in Pischan, Slovakia, mm-hmm. a very comfortable town known as Little America. So there's Hungary, here's Slovakia, that's the Slovakian name, but they call it Pishtin, so to speak. That's where he was a rabbi. You see, there's other places, Nitra, other places that are only famous because of Tzadikim who lived there. The city was famous for its mineral baths, okay, and which was used therapeutically. It was visited by Gedolim, who came for healing, and on their visits, they would always spend time with its rav. On their visits, Rav Teichel developed close relationships with Rav Meir Shapiro of Lublin, Rav Nachem Semba of Warsaw, Rav Lesser Khan Shapiro of Kovna, and others. So again, you get this um, understanding that he really was known to a lot of people. Now, at this point, I want to take a, a little break and go back to that safer that we talked about, the Emuna uh, Tzrufa Bekor HaShoah. Which, uh, which was his diary that he wrote um, during the Holocaust. So let's go to the other thing here. Uh, we need, I hope I've 
organized myself well. Yes. Okay. So, um, is this what I want? Yes. So here he writes in, uh, just take a little snippet from another article of things that he wrote about at the time. So take a look what he writes. This is from this uh, diary that he kept, uh, so to speak. So uh, he says, quote, For everlasting memory, I will record in pen, metal, and lead that in the year 1942, as God poured his wrath out upon the daughter of Zion, a grave decree of total deportation was pronounced on the Jews of the communities here in the state of Slovakia, including those of our community, Pishchap. May God observe from heaven the evil and violence that are being wrought against us. They have taken our wealth and deported us all, the young, the elderly, and even tender children, with such immense cruelty that the mouth tries to recount it and in hardship to the ruined land of Poland. May God have mercy on us quickly and tell our woes enough. I grieve for my collection and all manner of precious books, response I placed in a loft of the greater house of study. I grieve most of all for all my religious writings, 10 books of response and sermons in handwriting. God summoned to me a loyal, trustworthy Gentile with whom I concealed all of my manuscripts along with manuscripts by other rabbis, such as that of my mentor and father-in-law, etc., etc. May God help me so that he will return us to placid and safe waters and privilege us with returning to our holy land. Then we'll come back to this place to reclaim my manuscripts from the aforementioned Gentile. The name of the Gentile with whom my manuscripts were placed is Michal Lahota. He tells where he is. May God grant me the merit of witnessing the imminent redemption of Israel and God's return to Zion's lead our days of Maine, etc., etc., etc. So clearly, this is what he wanted. He knew things were very bad and was hoping one day he would get back to that, which unfortunately he never did. So we continue now, life in Pishchan. Rav Teichel was the Rav in Pishchan for 20 years. During that time, he fulfilled his life ambition to found the yeshiva. It was called Moriah. Moriah was an elite yeshiva for exceptional students. Each, each year, only 50 new students were admitted. The yeshiva's mission was to train future Abanim who would lead communities across Europe. Rav Teichel was more than a Rosh yeshiva. He was a father figure to his students, both when they were in yeshiva and after they graduated. And this was a fairly common type of picture. Every yeshiva would have a picture of the Rosh Yeshiva in the middle, the Rabbeim next to him, and then the different students that were in the yeshiva. I know he tells yeshiva had one. Many yeshivas would have that. So we're really showing you he was an incredible, incredible scholar. We're gonna skip this page and move on to now as we're getting so. So it is clear we're talking about a scholar of the first dimension, not just a scholar, a community leader, a real godel. Now, why don't you hear so much about him? Because he got murdered in the Holocaust. He didn't survive the Holocaust. So those who didn't survive the Holocaust, you don't know a lot of them, especially if you're not Hasidic, and especially if you're not Hungarian. <laughs> so it's unfortunate that's what happens. Now, let's get more to the, we're getting closer to the core issue here. Here is the birth of the Sefer, Aim Habanim Semecha. Now that may sound familiar. Mm -hmm. If you said Hallel this mm -hmm. week, 
at it, one of the paragraphs ends, Aim Habanim Samecha, hallelujah. The mother of the children is happy. In 1938, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia while Rav Teichel was Rav of Pischian. Shortly after, the Nazis began their campaign to demoralize the Jews by restricting their movement and instituting discriminatory laws against them. During that time, as a community leader, Rav Teichel worked tirelessly organizing relief efforts. There's a picture of him closer at that time. In the spring of 1942, deportations began. Rav Teichel and his family hid in the attic of the local base medrash. Through the cracks in the wall, he watched and witnessed the mass deportations of his friends and neighbors. In response, he took a vow that if he would survive, he would write a safer in honor of the land of Israel with the goal to inspire Jews to move to Israel and rebuild it. He began to fulfill that promise immediately in the attic with no access to Svarim, he began writing his Am Magnum Opus, Aim Habonim Semecha. What you need to know, and this is the important point, until then, he was an outspoken anti-Zionist. Why? Because that's what he was raised with. We're talking about secular Zionism, obviously. Outspoken. But now when he sees what's happening, he's beginning to reconsider his position. So now, as we move on to Budapest, there's Budapest over there. In Evel of 1942, at the arrangement of the chief rabbi of Slovakia, Rav Teichtal and his family escaped to Nitra. However, a few months later, the Nazis deported Jews from Nitra and so Rabbi Yisachar Shlomo and his family fled across the border to Hungary. They wandered around Hungary until they found refuge in Budapest, where they remained for two years. Remember, Hungary was spared for a while. He taught Torah and gave drushes whenever he could. He urged the people not to lose faith, to strengthen themselves in Torah and mitzvahs, and called upon them to return to Eretz Yisrael. On the 15th of Cheshbon in 1943, it was only less than a year that we made that vow, he completed his great work, Eim Habanim Samecha, a year after beginning. You have to remember that he had no svarim. He was on the move. You know, I know when I want to do anything, I have to go to my resources. He didn't have, he it was all from memory. You also need to know that when he wanted to give drushes in Hungary, you have to say he was not unanimously uh, favorably received. When he would talk about going to Israel, even then, with the Jews in Hungary. We will see what. Okay? As we say now, Hashem Yikom Damo. Hashem should avenge his death, his blood. In 1944, the Nazis invaded Hungary and immediately began their persecution. The Teichtals fled to Pressburg, but they were found there and sent to Auschwitz. In January 1945, as the Soviets advanced through Poland, the Nazis moved prisoners from Auschwitz into Germany. Rabbi Socher Shlomo Teichtal died on the train to Mathenhausen on the 10th of Schwat, January 24th, 1945. 
Today is the third of Shvat. Like mm-hmm. I said, next Shabbos is the tenth of Shvat will be his yard site. Now, the question is, how did he die? So let us see what happened. Now he left a son. His son, Rav Chaim Mendel Teichtal, wrote the following about his father's death. I'm going to have to make this a little smaller. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not going to. How about if I do the zoom to fit? Yes, that's what I want. Now, this is his son writing. We know the details of the passing of his sacred soul from the testimony of one of his students who was present at the time and now lives in Eretz Yisrael. During the month of Shvat, 1945, the Allied forces advanced on all fronts and the Russians reached the gates of Auschwitz. So even with the sword poised at their throats, the Nazis begrudged their tortured victims any chance of life. They used every means at their disposal to keep them from falling into the liberator's hands alive. I wonder why. Mm-hmm. wonder what they'd have to tell the world. <laughs> the Nazis loaded the Jews onto locked freight trains together from Ukrainian prisons, prisoners who harassed the Jews mercilessly to transport them to unknown destinations yeah. far from the front. Even then, on such circumstances, the Ukrainian harassed the Jews. After the Holocaust, that's right. That's right. Yes, you yes. shouldn't feel sorry for any of those Ukrainians no. now. Yep. They're getting yeah. everything they deserve. Exactly. After starving their victims for a number of days, the oppressors tossed each of them a meager crust of bread, with the evil intent of having them fight pathetically for their paltry allotment. Indeed, one of the Ukrainians grabbed the portion of a Jew, my father's neighbor, who was desperate for this crust of bread. This angered my father, who demanded the return of the theft. The other travelers begged my father not to get involved, Mm -hmm. since it might cost him his life. But he said, how can I stand by when the wrong man's life depends on this food? Indeed, he insisted on taking a stand. And the Ukrainians, with the cooperation of Nazi soldiers, rose against Rav Teichdal and killing him after torturing him mercilessly. <coughs> so he died, Al-Kiddush Hashem, trying to help another Yid. So there's obviously a Jew who cared very much and died <coughs> at the young age of 60. He had three children, Frumit Bransdorfer was from his first marriage. Reb Chaim Menachem Tachtal and Gittel Halberstam. This is the son who uh, we'll see. He passed away about 10 years ago <coughs> and really uh, continued the legacy of the Tachtal family. So we'll just give you a brief thing about the son. Okay, this is Reb Tachtal's son. Okay, and then obviously uh, that's, a, that's the same son and these are the children. So... He was a noted educator, so he lived till 90. Mm-hmm. He died in t- 2014. Yeah. Office farm. Now, listen, he survived by his children, Rav Shlomo, who lives in Crown Heights, Rav David, who lives in Nazareth Elite, Rav Meir, who lives in France, Mrs. Esther Bistritsky, who lives in Svas, Miss mm-hmm. Gita Volpo, who lives in Netanya, and Mrs. Bracha, who lives in France. Now, what do you find interesting about this? All over the world. Mm-hmm. What kind of religious Jewish background would be symbolic of children all over the world? Chabad. What? Chabad. Chabad. Exactly. 
And now you're going to see there is an interesting Chabad connection over here. Okay? So let's... Uh, so this is the grandchildren. Children and grandchildren. Okay, so here was a, an obituary written about Rav Teichtal's son. Rav Chaim Mendel Teichtal died at 91. Uh, so this is someone talking about their Zaidi, so we don't have to read everything. So they talked about, uh, in his library, he proudly takes out a brown hardcover journal that was once hidden in a coffee can. It's an original manuscript that his scholarly father, of Yitzhakar Shlomo, had written from the attic, hiding from the Nazis. Using no reference or other books, but only memory alone, the author of Mishnah Sacher composed another tome, Aim Habonim Semeicha. The papers were covered with words from margin to margin with flowing, evenly spaced letters as if his father, the head rub of Pishchan, Slovakia, could sense the urgency and yet still remain driven to teach and give hope. His father was later murdered by peasants. We already discussed that. Another brother, David, perished while hiding for lack of medicinal care. So that was the other brother. This you did not see in our Saba's eyes, though, when he's looking at the book. This you knew from history. But in him, the strength was only a fire to publish his father's books. Every extra earned dollar went to printing costs, translating into many languages, and to procure only the finest binding, etc., etc. Okay. So now he continues. He says, Oi, Meha Yolanda, woe was to us. We were running from the claws of the Nazi beasts as my father urged us to flee. We went from Belgian labor camps to Vichy, France. There, the Rebbe's cousin, Chabad, Reb Zalman Schneerson housed a quasi-orphanage, and he hid us. Though we were older than the legal limit permitted, one night while hiding downstairs, we heard the essence of the door. Our hearts were beating in our ears as we heard from st them storm through. What's down there? Came the gruff echoes. Only books, we heard Schneerson reply. At this, Safta interrupted with a weary wave of her hand. Ah, oh, why talk of these dark days? Anyway, he looked at her with the softest look, gentlest respect in his eyes, as he, this giant man, said, it was when we look back that we can truly thank Hashem for the good. There in that Schneerson home, together with other orphans, he studied Chabad Hasidus. Mm -hmm. In this family, he had siblings that were Tzanzer Hasidim, Toldus Aaron, the Halberstam family from B'nai Brak, and even a Goan in Slobodka, who later studied Tanya. Yet knowing his father's high regard for Chabad, Reb Chaim Menachem directed a Chabad school in France and later said it was Shikon Chabad, etc., etc. So you see that was Chabad Hasidim who helped the son of Rav Teichtel survive. And that's why now that family has a great uh, connection with that family. Is that, is that was like considering the dynasty of the family, was that like a really a radical thing for them to, to do, to join Chabad or, or, or? Well, it's Hasidus, you know, but it is different. It is different, no question about it. Okay, let's move back over here. We're gonna be jumping around. Let's get to now the historical concepts, and this is very important. Few theological works were written during the Holocaust itself. Most attempt to understand the Holocaust in hindsight. In other words, great rabbis after the Holocaust look back into the Holocaust. And after seeing a lot of things that happened, it depends when you wrote it. If you wrote it before the State of Israel was created, after the State of Israel was created, 
There were various opinions to weigh in on what happened in the past. But very few were written during, mamish, in the midst of the Holocaust. Now, two come to mind. One is Eim Habanim Samecha, while the atrocities were unfolding. The other famous one was the Eish Kodesh, that we've talked about many times, written by the Piazetsa Rebbe, Roklanimus Kalman Shapiro. And we've talked many times, we've learned a lot of his works. Okay? Now here's the difference. Now the Eish Kodesh was also, has been printed into English, so you could read the English. The Eish Kodesh was more, when the rabbi spoke in the ghetto at Shalashudas, and those were those uh, drushes that were written down, he wrote them down after Shabbos. But those drushes, if you will read the entire Sefer, you wouldn't know that they were in the Warsaw Ghetto. He never talks about Hitler. Very rare. Nothing. But what does he do? The whole purpose of that was Divrei Torah on the Parsha to provide strength and comfort for the people who are in the ghetto. So it, what you are impressed from the Piazetzna Rebbe is his faith. Incredible faith. Can imagine every week this one died, that one died. You know, horrific things were going on. It was nothing good. And life had to go on. People had to get married. Children were still born. And he had to give them chizuk and amuna. That was that safer. And that's a tremendous uh, safer to help us work on our amuna. Rav Teichel's safer is altogether different. It is really a theological safer. It's not drushes, but it's a call to action. That's the big difference. And you'll see why it's so controversial. Okay, let's make sure I haven't forgotten things. Yes. Okay, see. Uh, let's go to the other sources, please. Not to appreciate what's going on uh, over here. Let's just, this is what I want. One second. Yes, so this will help with the, yes. So here's a person. This is from Rav Teichtel's Sefer, Mishnah Sachir, dated Yom Kippur, 1943. I'm recalling and transcribing in order not to forget what I saw and heard that Yom Kippur, a sight I'd never seen before in my life, a vision that was awesome and dreadful that Yom Kippur night. This is in Hungary. The rabbi came into shul. This is not Rav Teichel. Rav Teichel is telling what he saw as a regular, quote-unquote, regular person. Came to Shul completely bent over, bent over from the dead, dread of judgment, but even more contributed to his being hunched over, the pain of our congregation. The rabbis who were there told me he was bent over double the way he normally was, carrying both the fear of judgment with the pain the nation of Israel was growing through. He was literally bent over to the ground, this is how he walked and stepped to the Holy Ark and began crying out, Shir Hamalos Kim Hashem. From the deepest depth of pain reflecting our situation, now we cried out to you. He began to enumerate the terrible things that had befallen the congregation. Where are my brothers? I'm missing my Balabatim. And he started to name them. Where is this one and this one? Last year he was here. We're all here together. 
and more and more and more. It's impossible to recount everyone. Where is each one now? And then he added, fathers who are here now are asking, where are our sons who were here last year? Sons are asking, where are our fathers who dedicated their souls to raising us and who now have been stolen from us? Where are they? The husband asks about his wife and the wife asks about his husband, her husband. Where is she? Where is he? Small children who were stolen from their mother's embrace, whose parents know nothing of their whereabouts. He enumerated the multiple tragic stories that have affected families amongst us. I can make this bigger. One second. Yeah, that's better. And then there was a tremendous emotional outcry. The likes I had never before seen in my life. Throughout the synagogue, men and women were crying in a loud voice, screams which almost caused people to faint. Children six years older, old and younger were also crying in a loud voice, almost like a stone wall was crying with us without stopping. The rabbi continued, Avinu Malkeinu, our Father in heaven, Asei Lema'an, do it for the children who study. Hear the simple cries of innocent children over whom the sultan has no prosecutorial argument. See how they have been exiled in this most difficult way from our, their mothers. Avinu Malkeno, Aselaman, do it for those who have been murdered over your holy name. How many of our Jewish brothers and sisters have been killed by the hands of the cursed ones, even though they had done nothing to deserve this fate? Avinu Malkeno, have mercy upon us and our children. Through all of his expounding on the Avino Malkatus, the crying never stopped, the great sounds of everyone's voice, the broken hearts from every corner, both from the men's section and women's section. I do not have the ability to describe the awesome sight which I saw in the synagogue, the only one in the country where a large number of people gathered, and Hashem should add for us 1,000 times this number, blah, 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 he's saying, in the whole country, Hungary. Many communities have already been destroyed to the point that many did not even have a minion in these days. And in my community of Pishtan, that's where the, the, he was the Rebbe, we had lost close to 500 Jewish families. Since the expulsion from there, from Pesach to Rosh Hashanah, to only three families left. Imagine being the rabbi, 500 families, only three left. No me at all. There's only a minion where I am now, the other, because the rabbi here is a tremendous tzaddik. The chief rabbi and his merit people came from all over the country to benefit from his shade. We are very grateful to the wonderful Balabatim, important, wealthy, influential, Godfrey men, who were able to impress upon the officials of the city not to bring about the decrees of the country to this place in the manner that's befallen our other communities. It's the main reason why this congregation is still here. Although even from here, Around 4,000 souls have been deported, but 1,000 people still remain here. And God should save them from the terrible decree, and they should remain here until God brings salvation, etc., etc. So this had an amazing effect. Mm -hmm. But now we have another, now this sermon that Rav Teichtal gave during the war as someone who was there and heard it. So here you have one speech Rav Teichtal heard, one that Rav Teichel saw, a said, so you can appreciate why the Eim Habanim Samecha is going to come out and what it says. 
says, what can I say? How can we speak and how should we justify? So God has found the sinister. I should tell you a story. In a, so this is what Rav Teichdal told the congregation. In a small town, there was a Shabbos of a shul who died, leaving behind a widow. The people in the community thought about how they could provide her some financial support. For at the same time, there was no pension for widows. Perhaps it would be possible to allow her to continue the work of her late husband. On the other hand, it was not proper for a woman to serve as the shamish of the synagogue. Facebook decided that she would carry out those activities that could be performed outside the synagogue, while the tasks of the shamish during prayers inside the synagogue would have been done on a voluntary basis. Thus, the woman would be able to continue earning the salary that her husband had received. Came time for slichos. He wanted to get up early. And as part of her job, the woman had to go up and uh, go up and about from house to house, waking up the people for slichos. There's no alarms. She took the special slichos stick in her hand and headed for the most distant house in the village, the home of Weiss Shender. When she knocked on the door, Weiss Shender awoke, alarmed at the disturbance at such an unusual hour. When he opened the door and saw the wife of the shamus, he asked what she wanted. She explained as part of her duty, she had to go from house to house waking everyone up for slichos. When Weiss Shender heard this, he tried to persuade her it wasn't seemly for a woman to go about outside so early in the morning. In such cold and wet weather, it would be better if he did the job in her stead. The woman accepted the offer and handed him the slichos stick. And Weiss Shender set off to wake the people. Upon knocking at the first house, he was asked to identify himself. He answered, I am Weiss Shender, and I've taken it upon myself to waken the people for slichos. The house owner was incensed. Weiss Shender? A pork eater like you isn't going to wake me up for slichos. With that, he slammed the door and went back to sleep. <laughs> went off to the second house, and again came the question, who is it? Again, he gave the same reply, and again the same response. Weiss Shender? A Shabbat desecrator like you will not come and wake me for slichos. Again, a door was slammed in his face. The same thing happened in the next house. A swindler and gambler like you will not wake me for slichos. And so on in every house throughout the entire village, the wake-up round ended with nothing more to show for itself than a trail of scorn and disdain. Not a single person got up for slichos. When the congregation was gathered for the morning prayers, the rabbi asked, what happened this year that no one came to the shul for slichos? The people started justifying themselves and explaining it was all Weiss Shender's fault. <laughs> He was a shady character and was notorious throughout the village. It was he who had come to awaken them for slichos, and that was why none of them had come. Fools, responded the rabbi. It's true that White Shender is guilty of everything that you accused him, but this time he was waking you up for slichos. He wasn't doing any of the bad things he's known for, so why didn't you get up? Now here, Rav Teichel, who's telling over this story, he bursts into tears. It's true that the Zionists desecrate Shabbos and so forth, 
but it was they who awakened the nation and shouted, get out of the rubble. The Gentiles hate us. There's no place for us except in Eretz Yisrael. And we didn't listen. Okay, wow. What a story, eh? What a story. And this is what he is saying during the Holocaust. Okay. It's like the three boats story, you know? The three boats come to help you. Well, that's different. That, no, but that's a different story. This has a much different point. Mm-hmm. The point is clear. He was a bad person. Yeah. But just because he's a bad person doesn't mean that if he's doing something good, you ignore it. Not only this, but he took up the woman's job. Yes, exactly. He yeah. was going around. There wasn't a marshal. It was a true story. Okay, now we got to look at the history. Am I okay? Yes, okay. Next point. Let's look at the anti-Zionist perspective that was very strong in the religious community. Okay, we have to really get the history straight here. So now, there were three main reasons that people were against secular Zionism. Okay, three reasons. Number one was a halachic basis. I don't want to get into the details. There's a certain piece of Agadita in the Talmud that discusses about three oaths that were made uh, on behalf of the Jewish people. And one of the oaths, while we're in exile, one of the oaths is we shall not go up en masse to the land of Israel. It's one of the oaths. Okay, I don't want to get into the details. Uh, And... The three oaths taken to not go back to Israel. So they said, it's a Talmudic source. Don't ascend with force until the Mashiach comes. Now, so this, again, this is giving you the basis of Hungarian Hasidic Jewry at the time. And we know that the uh, uh, the Satmarov yeah. from Hungary was very virulently anti-Zionist, the secular Zionist. But, you know, this is questionable because the source of the Talmud is not a halachic source. It's more of an agaditic source, so it's hard to bring proofs from that. But that's one proof. The second one is what we call the historical context based on the proliferation of false messiahs that had came over in the last few hundred years. After Chmelnitzky's destruction of the Jewish people in 1658 and 59, so after that, that was like a precursor to the Holocaust, so to speak, in a certain way. And countless communities were just wiped out. Boom. People thought for sure Mashiach's coming. So guess what? Shabtai Tzvi came along, and people were longing for Messiah, but he was a charlatan. Mm-hmm. And others after him, Jacob Frank, David Haruveni. So people uh, were very vulnerable to false messiahs. Um, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the author of Mesil Shoram in the 1700s, was looked upon askance because they said, what's with this Kabbalah and this kind of stuff? He had all kinds of troubles uh, from the establishment. So clearly, now, people would recoil at new false hopes. And clearly, this was viewed as one of them, especially, why? Since who are the people doing this? Not religious people at all. So people get all excited, but not probably, 
Now, this also leads to the third one. The Enlightenment and the suspicion Zionism was rooted in a yearning for Jewish nationalism, like other forms of nationalism, has nothing to do with Judaism. And suspicion supported by break with religion and even anti-religious sentiment and attitude. The secular Zionists hated religion, hated religious Jews. And unfortunately, history bears us out and they were responsible for the death of many religious Jews. This is a fact, this is not speculation. So that's good reason to say, what do we have, what, what, these are the worst people in the world. And he was raised by that. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of this is true. A lot of this is true. Let's move on. Now, so, so what do we do? So how did the Orthodox Jews react? And this is exactly how Rav Teichtel was raised as his big scholar. So they reacted to the birth of secular Zionism by continuing to love and long for Eretz Yisrael. But apart from a yearning to return Jewish sovereignty before Mashiach would come. We have to wait for Mashiach. Now the best way to bring Mashiach is to learn more Torah, do more mitzvahs. The very practices that the new Zionism was neglecting and breaking away from. So it wasn't we just don't hold them. We said we got to strengthen our Torah learning. And yes, many yeshivas proliferated. And that's exactly what Rav Teichtel was doing. He opened up the yeshiva to proliferate Torah learning. This is what should be done. Now, what's interesting is now we step all of a sudden comes a third group, and these are the religious Zionists. Okay, like Mizrahi. Okay, it's all in the historical context. You're dealing now the early 1900s. Okay were condemned by both the Zionist camp. Why? Because they weren't loyal enough to the nationalistic cause because what's this Torah business? The, the religious Zionists believed you still have to have Torah, but we're willing to work with you, right? And the religious condemned them because what are you hanging around the anti-religious? Okay? Now, the religious Zionists at the time were few and far in between. But you see, you had three groups now. So really it was a real schism. Mm-hmm. The secular Zionists, that is trafe. Because anyone involved with was not religious. These were part of the casualties of the reform movement. When the reform movement saw that even all our reforms, they still hate us, like the Mendel Bayless case and things like that. So they understood there's going to be no solution to this until we have our own country but will still remain totally not religious. And we want to bring non-religion to Israel. Now, if you're a religious Jew, you know that's the worst thing that could ever happen. That's poison, which is true. We see throughout the Torah that that if you do a virus in Israel, it's a million times worse. Christ said, have nothing to do with them. And that made a lot of sense. And then you got these religious Zionists say, well, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with Eretz Yisrael, so there must be something he gained. So now, to be very specific, Rav Teichtel's main guide was the Munkacharebbe, right there. The Munkacharebbe. So in this context, remember, Rav Teichtel was born in 1885. 
five. Okay, so when he becomes uh, uh, like 15 already, he can learn a little toys in the 1900s. That's exactly when Herzl is starting his Mishigasi. So he's raised and educated in Hungary. He was taught a strong opposition to Zionism and, and identified within the courts of great Hasidic Rebbe's, including the Munkatsha Rebbe, who was very outspoken against Zionism. During his most influential period, Jews of Europe enjoyed comfort and acceptance. Remember, he's growing up 1885. He's a rabbi in 1905, 1906. How was life in, in Europe at that time? It wasn't even World War I. They were citizens with equal rights and opportunities. As a matter of fact, Rav Moshe Shapiro, mm -hmm. Rev, uh, was, um, was uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the one who started the Dafyomi. Oh, Shapiro, right. Moshe. But not Moshe, what's his first name? Give him a memory lapse. Yeah. The one who founded the Dafio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the last name Shapiro. Well, maybe it was from Mayor? Mayor Mayor Shapiro. Mayor Shapiro. Founded the Dafio. He was on the Moeses Goetora. He was also a member of the Polish Parliament. Mm, really? Wow. Can you imagine a big Russia Shiva is a member of the Polish Parliament. Like, come on. This fueled the anti Zionists who felt they were safe and accepted, and there was no reason they couldn't wait for Mashiach to come while still in the exile. Sound a lot more like America now? For sure. Canada? Right? In 1936, Rav Teichdal published a letter in the Yiddish Zeitung newspaper, which was published in Munkach, supporting the Rebbe's view that the building up of Eretz Yisrael was a desecration of sanctity <laughs> and would lead to the land being defiled. He wrote, Zionism is a desecration of holiness and a defilement of the supernal and holy land. Let us take, a, this is so important to really understand this person before you open up the Sefer, Eim Habanim Samecha. This is why you, it's, it's just remarkable. Without the context, you're really missing a lot. This is what I want here, page nine. So uh, let's just discuss a little bit over here. Um, this is an article written by Rabbi Dr. Aaron Rakefes Rothkoff. The main thing he wrote was about Rav, uh, Rav Soloveitchik, Rav Yashabir Soloveitchik, who was the head of the Rashiva Yeshiva University, Reitz, who passed away like, what's it, 20 years ago. And really, Rav Yashabir, it's really a, a, an interesting story of its own. Rav Yashabir was, was part of the Brisk dynasty. Mm -hmm. The great, and this is the hardcore yeshivish of people where like when my, my son Menachem learns in Brisk. I mean, this is as Haredi as you get. Okay. Where was it located? Brisk was in either Lithuania or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was like, it was like the premier yeshivish, yeshivish world. And, uh, and, and, and the famous Brisk, all the Soloveitchiks were just incredible scholarship that was there. And Rabia Shabir, uh, uh, Soloveitchik, was part of that. But as time passed, and he was raised very firm, he also was, uh, had a Lubavitcher for his Cheder Rebbe as well. And he was a genius. 
But as time passed and as uh, history made things happen, Israel, Rev. Uh, Salvechik decided he has to be part of Mizrahi. Wow. Okay, and this whole article, which I'm not going to go through now, shows how it really caused a tremendous rift in the Salvechik family. Because yeah. he was like, look, that is the black sheep of the family. What do you mean? It was unbelievable. So this all what this uh, article's all about, which is amazing, and it's something to to read on your own. But the part that I want to come out of here is, and well, it, it's it's all thing. It, it's it deserves another class, okay. But in part of this, now we get to Rav Teichtal, okay. This is, uh, this was a different article. So you could just just the conclusion of Rav Soloveitchik, okay. We should have another have a class of Rav Salvechik. So this was arguably the greatest exponent of religious Zionists in the latter half of the 20th century. He traveled a long path to reach this position. By the 1930s, the Rav had become a fervent agudist, which was the opposite. This position stemmed from his family background and formative experience in Europe and America. It took the war and subsequent establishment of the state of Israel to force the Rav to reevaluate his approach and come to the belief that the Aguda worldview was no longer tenable. Mm -hmm. He constructed a majestic religious Zionism built on activism and the passionate desire to seek out God's guiding hand in the world. He became an ardent Zionist and a member of the Mizrahi. He had always maintained his independent view. Each decision he made was subject to rigorous analysis and Allah was never subjugated in favor of Zionist sentiment. Mm -hmm. You hear what he, what's going on over here? He wouldn't, if the halacha was you couldn't do this, even if all the Zionists said yes, nothing doing. His switch from a good of the Mizrahi was a testament to his intellectual honesty and personal conviction. It was hard for the Rav to differ from his family, change his associations, and uproot his worldview. Yet he came to see us as a fulfillment of two fundamental religious obligations. The drive to attune with the will of God and the mandate to emulate God's creativity, to be an activist and make an impact in the wider world. Both the content and context of his Zionist philosophy have beautifully and beautiful and powerful messages for us all. So again, if you talk about Rav Yosheber Soloveitchik in the yeshivish world, fit. It's like, he, he's nobody. You know, and, and he has cousins, he had cousins, brother, like, forget it. He was a traitor, whatever you want to say. Okay, it, it's not my job to uh, judge him. It's only Hashem's job to judge him. He's a great tzaddik. And uh, again, there could have been people who didn't follow exactly everything he said should be done. That always happens. But that is, a, but that's not. A, but you see already that if you go against the establishment, mm -hmm. you are shunned. And again, if you look in the yeshivish world, you know, if you want to just go to Lakewood and say to anybody, "What do you think about Rav Yosher Ber Salvechik?" You will mm -hmm. not hear anything good about. So I don't want to talk about. Nice. No. You go into Brisk. Okay, I don't. Yeah. It's it, anyway. It's like really not good. Okay, anyway, so now we go to a different article about Rav Taichta. So we'll just read a little bit here, and we'll end it with this. And that'll be a good place for us to start next week, actual things he wrote, to get an idea. 
Rev Teichdal took vehement exception to the Zionist project in writing and evidently as well. I'm going to give you one last example. His written censure of Zionism appeared in 1936 in a letter to the Munkach newspaper, Yiddish Zeitung, etc., etc., which is something published in another place, etc. The collection challenged both the Mizrahi movement and the Goodish Yisrael. Rav Teichdal is, in fact, one of the most extreme contributions to the collection. This is now Rav Teichdal's words. A rabbi, the Bach, that's one of the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, wrote that the sanctity of the earthly Eretz Yisrael mm-hmm. emanates from the sanctity of the heavenly Eretz Yisrael. And this sanctity enters its fruit. Oh, so we're coming to Tu mm-hmm. Thus, by eating its fruit, we are nourished on the sanctity and purity of the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence. The opposite also obtains, heaven forbid. If Eretz is defiled, this impurity is also drawn into the fruit. And by eating fruit that draws its nourishment from the impurity of Eretz Yisrael, the impurity penetrates the inners of the Jews. May Hashem have mercy on us. And the sanctity leaves them. And the Shekhinah amongst the Jews vanishes. So says the Bach. This was a commentary written in the 15-1600s. And after, after all, it is known that the heavenly Eretz Yisrael is the foundation of Zion and Jerusalem. The evil forces, the Klippos, surround them and are called Arelim, uncircumcised, as yet unfit for consumption. Because Mount Zion is surrounded by Esau and Amalek. Now that the building of the land of Israel is at issue, every Jew should learn this in order to gain some grasp of what the true Eretz Yisrael is. The verse, when by the spies, remember the spies says, mm-hmm. the land was Eretz, Ocheles, Yoshvehi, mm-hmm. a land that consumes its mm-hmm. inhabitants because they saw a lot of funerals, mm-hmm. indicates this. Eretz Yisrael consumes those who wish to settle there serenely and high-handedly merely to consume its fruit. You hear the word? It's a land that consumes. It's a great land of fruit, but if all you want is to eat the fruit, the land will consume you. The aforementioned remarks of the Bach invite another illusion. The impurity enters via its fruit, and Jews who consume it force the sanctity out of their bodies, and the fruit turns into thorns in their bodies. Thus, as is said in the Sefer Shmos, it says, me door, door, from generation to generation. In a diminishing from the word of kotz vidar dar tatzmiach, thorns and thistles to the lamb bring. That was the curse to Adam. For this is the essence of what Amalek does. Defile the land and makes its fruits kotz door vidor for the Jews. In truth, no human deed and act will be of any use whatsoever in raising the fortunes of Zion and Jerusalem until God observes from heaven and basks us in an all-embracing spirit of celestial purity to immerse us in new luminescence from the six days of creation in the revelation of the hidden light upon Zion, which is Mashiach. Until such time, as God renews the hidden light, we have no vocation other than Torah by gathering and teaching pupils in Chadorim, yeshivas, on the path that we received from our forebears, namely only by study of the Holy Torah in the old and expe- accepted Gaila-less way will we merit 
the redemption. This is 1936. Okay, we're going to leave it here next week. We already began to see what changed, mm -hmm. but this is going to make him a very controversial character because this is cut in the cloth, a goodish Yisrael, Hungarian Hasidish Jewry, totally anti-Zionist. By 1936, and I would suggest even till 1939, the change happened in 1942. So now we're going to, next week, we're going to look at some things he writes, and then the question is going to be, who was he really like? Was he like Rav Cook? Was he like somebody else? And, uh, but this is, uh, clearly, Rav Cook was always a Zionist. Right? Now remember, Ruf Cook, interestingly, if you're putting the numbers, he died in 1935. Okay, so Ruf Cook was well uh, around at this time, and Ruf Cook was very pro-Zionist, so that's also, but he always, he was never negative. He wasn't raised in that part of the world, so to speak, to have those ones, and he came to Israel very early, so he already saw what was going on. Here you have somebody who really, really was an anti-Zionist to his core. And now he does tshuva. Mm -hmm. And the question is, to what extent does he do this tshuva? So that's what we're going to look at next week. Now you're ready to look at the Sefer Eim Habanim Samecha, and we'll go through certain different aspects, and then we'll decide if you want to do more in the Sefer or leave it on your own. That will be to be decided. Okay, is this Sefer like appropriate for for us to read? Anybody. It, 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 it's a little bit Talmudic, but not hard. I mean, it's it, this is a very good version. Is it too technical? No, but it's going to talk about like Sukkim and Gomorrahs, but it's explainable. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll work on it. There's, uh, he wrote it in Hebrew, obviously, and there's been two different English translations. There's one that you can even see online if you want to even look at that. Uh, we will talk more about this next week. But at least we'll understand the real basis of what he says. And then it's something to think about, especially at this time. It's a very important thing to look at.